You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're in a series this, uh, this, this summer. We'll be winding it up in a couple of weeks, but uh, walking through the minor prophets. And uh, this morning we're looking at the book of, of Haggai. And the topic that I want to throw out, or the question I want to throw out is, is how do you really put God first? What does it mean for you to put God first in your life? What does it look like for you to do that? We, we know that we're supposed to do that. Um, we know that that's what God wants. I mean, the first commandments, right? The Ten Commandments in Exodus, God said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, one God. And, you shall, and he goes on, he says, You shall have no other gods before me that we're to serve God and we're not to allow anything else to take that priority in our life to raise up as more important than God, that he should be first and number one. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told the people, as he was explaining to them, is saying, basically, look, guys, trust me for what you have. Trust me to feed you. Trust me to clothe you. And he gives us the bottom line, which is kind of uh, opposite of what we would naturally do or think. He says, look, seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness and all these things, in other words, all your needs in life will be added to you. So we're to seek God's kingdom, seek him and his kingdom, and God will take care of all the other stuff. Well, this morning we're going to see, and that's a, by the way, that's a theme throughout all the Bible. We're going to see that the people of Israel had a tough time living that out practically. Now, if we had stopped them along the street and interviewed them, if we were to do a you know, if you were a reporter kind of doing like a little video, you know, and had the microphone in their face and you're going to post it, you know, a little survey. And if you were to stop the average Jew at that point and say, excuse me, sir, do you think it's important to put God first? Absolutely. God should be number one. Okay. And let me ask you the next question. Are you putting God first? Absolutely. I'm putting God first. I pray. I believe in God. I'm a Jew, of course, aren't I? Okay, sir. They would have all said that they were doing that. But reality is, is God looked at their life, and he looked at their lifestyle, and he looked at what they were doing, and he said, we have a problem. You guys are not putting me first. In fact, why are you living in such wonderful homes, and my own home is in ruins? So read with me, if you would, the book of Haggai. We'll, we'll read chap- the first part of chapter 1, and then we'll, let's talk about what that means into our life today. So the Bible says this in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And here's what that word was. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the I am that I am of hosts. These people, talking about the the Jews who are resettling in Jerusalem, these people say the time has not come, yet come, to rebuild the house of the Lord. A little backstory. You guys know as we walk through Daniel and some of the other prophets that, that God had sent other kingdoms in to capture uh, Israel and to deport them. And so all of the, the, the political and uh, most of the leaders were captured and sent away. That's why Daniel and his friends were taken away into Babylon. And then uh, later on, God prophesied that there would be a leader by the name of Cyrus who would allow the Jews to go back to Israel to reestablish Jerusalem and to reestablish the temple. And so Cyrus some 16, 17 years before, decreed and allowed the Jews to go back to Israel. Now, you need to think about a country that was completely war-torn. Think about, I mean, there was no infrastructure. The temple was completely in in shambles. The building had fallen down, needed to be completely rebuilt. Homes were destroyed. Think about what happens, the neglect and all that had gone on. These people came back and had to rebuild their entire lives. And God's sitting in heaven, as it were, and he's like, "Uh, folks, it's been 16 years. I let you come back to rebuild my temple. Why do you say the time hasn't come and my house is in shambles? It was a picture that they weren't putting God first like they said they were. Go on in verse 4 with me. Uh, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, your 
fancy, expensive homes, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, in verse 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much. You've planted, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you really never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Must have been New York with all the taxes. You know, you earn it and it goes right out the bottom. But that's another, I didn't say that. Uh, but you earn your wage and it goes right out the other side. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. And here's why, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's why. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, and on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." God says to the Jews, consider your ways. Let's think about this. Pray with me, would you, as we unpack this together. Father, I thank you for the truths of your word. We've enjoyed the minor prophets. They're not so minor. Uh, they really should have been called the shorter prophets because there's some significant things in here for us. But, Father, I thank you for the truths of Haggai. I thank you that you used him to awaken the people of Israel. Ezra tells us that under his preaching, that the people were blessed immensely and the temple was rebuilt. And we, we even read that here uh, in this chapter. And Father, I pray that we would learn from his preaching that our hearts too might be renewed, refreshed, challenged. Lord, may we put you first in every area of our life. Father, I, I recognize that we so often don't really know where we stand with you. We make presumptions and we think everything's good but you as a God of heaven are looking at every area of our life. So, Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to search our hearts this morning. Father, would you whisper and speak into every soul here today? Lord, those who've never taken that step to fully trust you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would convict them, that they would be moved to put their full trust, their hearts would be enlightened to understand, and they put their full trust in Jesus as Lord. And Father, those who do know you, I pray that we would each take a, a next step or be renewed in our relationship and be sharpened to put you first. God, would you work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An amazing story is amazing. I would love to have been there to watch Haggai as a prophet preach. And Israel was kind of out to lunch. They were doing their own thing. I mean, to some degree, we kind of understand it. They had to go back to homes and rebuild homes. Many were going back to a place that they had never seen before. It seemed for the first time. Farmlands had become overgrown. Things were not taken care of. They had to re rebuild houses. I mean, I can envision them camping out and having to unplug wells and just an immense amount of work to, to do this. And so as they came back, I mean, you've got to eat to live, right? You've got to work to eat and provide for yourselves. But a decade and a half, God said, long enough. You haven't done anything on my house. You've, you've ignored it. And they were missing the fact that they really was an indicator that they really were not putting God first in their life, like they thought they were, like they should have been. The whole reason that God was bringing them back was not just so that they could have this wonderful, perfect life that they could, you know, kind of go back to see their grandparents' home and, you know, their great-grandparents. God was bringing them back for the restoration of his people, for his kingdom, so that his glory would go forward and that his message of salvation could be not only provided for the world, the gospel through Jesus uh, coming and dying on the cross, but that message would go forward. So they were missing it. First thing I want you and I to recognize this morning is that God notices everything in our life. 
God pays attention, guys. You, you and I don't pay attention always. We usually pay attention to stuff that's coming our way, but we don't always pay attention to everything that we're doing, and we certainly miss a lot of what's going on around. If you're a parent, you know, when you go from one child to two kids, and then when you definitely go from two to three and three into four, somewhere between the first kid and the fourth kid, you lose touch. You really don't know everything that kid's doing because you're outnumbered as a parent and just, you know, kids are going wherever. When you have one child, like, I mean, every little move is just, whew, you're right there, you know. The kid has a microscope on them. If they could, they would, write, they would wear a T-shirt like, Mom and Dad, get your eyes off me. Like, leave me alone. A little space, please, you know. God see, but God sees everything that you and I do, everything. We miss so much, but God misses nothing. God's looking at the Jews, and he's looking at the details that they're putting into their homes. Somewhere along the way, they went from just surviving and trying to make their life and rebuild their life in the, the, the worn, torn, worn out uh, capital city of Jerusalem to where at this point, God's like, why are you living in houses with wall-to-wall carpeting and granite counters and, and, and lots of uh, distressed wood that looks so nice? Why are you... Having in, you know, living with your two-car garages and, and all of your bonus rooms. Why are you living in such expensive homes and you haven't even given my house the time of day and it's sitting here in a, a, a rubble? Why? That didn't escape God's notice at all. I want you and I to realize that God pays attention to every area of our life. and that's a, That should be a wonderful thought, but it should be a sobering thought. What do you do when you're driving down the thruway and all of a sudden you see a state trooper there? What do you do? You immediately pump the brakes and, and look at your, your speedometer. Now, I'm one of the guys, I really try not to speed, and cruise control helps me a lot with that. But I'm the guy that says, folks, you don't need to do 60. The limit is 65. Like, he's not going to, he or she's not going to pull you over, you know? You weren't really speeding that much. Just, you know, keep going. It's healthy for you and me to get a, a dose of reminder this morning is that God sees into your heart. He sees everything you're thinking. He sees everything that you are working through in your mind. He sees everything you're doing. He sees everything you're planning and plotting. That's not so much to be a, a guilt thing as it is a sobering reality that, and an encouragement that from the one, one hand, God sees the pain that we're in and he reaches down and he loves us. But on the other hand, when you and I are disobedient to him, when we're not honoring him, when we are not glorifying him, when we're living in our life of sin, in fact, when we're even separated from him because we've never really surrendered our life to him, God sees all of that and he holds us accountable for it. But you and I have a tendency to do like the Jews and we miss it. We think everything's good. If we had interviewed them, they would have said, oh, yeah, everything's good. Boy, God brought us back to Israel. This is great. I, you know, every Sabbath day, I'm praying with my family. Yeah, the temple's not rebuilt, but I'm praying. They had a priest who was responsible at that day and age, so they had some sort of spiritual life going on. It's not that they were atheists or pagans. So I'm trying to paint the picture. They're like you and me. They're doing their spiritual thing, but God says, there's something drastically wrong in your heart, people, you're missing the priority of what I sent you back for. You and I need to be careful that we don't become complacent in our Christian life, that we don't begin to, if you will, put it in neutral and kind of just coast down the hill and go through the rhythms of our spiritual walk with God. They had done that. The, the, not the, the, the temple being in shambles was a picture, if you will, of the spiritual condition of their heart. They were dried, and they were decayed, and they didn't even know it. Now, they had some good excuses. It was a lot of work. It took a lot of work to get their building up. They had some enemies who didn't want to see them, the local neighbors. Keep in mind, you know, the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians and all of those groups, that the Assyrians, all of them, they kind of were the big boy. They were the they were the big kingdom that conquered all these other little kingdoms and they ruled over authority. So all these other little kingdoms, you know, they were kind of, see them as almost like rival, you know, brothers and sisters. And so Israel had some rival nations that didn't want to see them blessed, that were insecure and threatened. And so they would say, oh, we're going to go back to Cyrus and tell on you that you're doing bad. 
And they were afraid. They, they, they were afraid to rebuild and do all of those things. So what I'm saying is, is they had some excuses. And their procrastination, and call it that's what it was. If we had interviewed them, are you planning on rebuilding the temple? Oh, yeah, we're going to get started. Well, when? You and I never procrastinate when we're trying to serve God, do we? Oh, we've never put any... You, you, none of you guys would ever do that. I know that. I'm, some of you are smiling and get it. The rest of you, I'm being a little cynical and sarcastic. How many of us have all, you know, just put things off that God wants us to do and we know God wants us to do it? And finally, he ups the ante, hits us over the head, and we're like, okay, God, I will do it. I'll do it. Well, that's what was going on here. They were procrastinating their obedience. It wasn't that they didn't know what to do. God gave them the freedom. God gave them the charge. They knew what they were supposed to do. They just didn't do it. So God pays attention, and rest assured, because God loved them and he loves you, God will come knocking on the door of your house. And he will poke into you and he'll say, what's going on? And he may poke at some things that you think are good, but he's like, let's look at this and let's look at that. See, you can really only serve one of two things. You can either serve your kingdom, your plan, whatever it is you want to do in life and accomplish, your job, your career, your hobbies, your family, whatever's important, or you can serve God. You, you, you can't do both. And God says, you guys have chosen door number one, and I really sent you back, and you should be choosing door number two. So before we talk about how to solve this problem and what to do, and the solution's pretty simple, I, I want us to look a little bit further at the consequences. Notice what God tells them. He says in, in verse 5, he says, Consider your ways. You have sown much. He says, you guys have planted all kinds of fields, and you've, you've put all kinds of effort into the ground and taken care of the grain at the end of the season and saved and dried it appropriately and gotten it ready and planted it carefully, but when it came to harvest time, there was very little there. Birds must have eaten it, probably too much rain, or well, I guess we know it was a drought, it didn't germinate well, but he says, you did a lot of work and it came to nothing. In the business world today, God would say, yeah, you did a whole lot of marketing, you made a lot of business calls, and you didn't get much fruit. Not much happened in your your work world. He says, you eat, but you never have enough. You never really, you drink, but you're really not satisfied. You put clothes on, but they're not keeping you warm. And the money that you do get, there's holes in it. In other words, their cars are breaking down. Donkeys didn't do too well. You know, their houses weren't taken care of. Things didn't last. Nothing worked the way it should. And it seemed like everything was against them financially. God says, number one, consequences when you don't put me first is there really are economic hardships in you, in your life. There are economic hardships that Israel was going through. They were having it much harder than they should have. And it was really ultimately their fault. Sean, are you saying that when we serve God, that God blesses us financially? Are you going down that road with, you know, kind of the prosperity gospel, the TV preacher that, you know, just pray and God will give you a million dollars? No, I'm not going down that road. The, those guys go off the rails when they make it like a, a mathematical equation, you know, pray and that equals this, you know, and you serve God just so you can get this, and that's absurd. But scripture does teach us that God will always take care of you, and that God does bless you and he loves you, but he expects you to put him first. And when you put him first, he has a way of taking care of you. Now, that didn't make sense to them, you know? Guys, if you'd have gone home from work and, you know, wives would have said, you know, your kids would have said, Dad, there's nothing to eat, you would have said, okay, I'm going to go to church today. They'd been like, what? Go, we need you to go to work to earn some money. No, I'm going to go serve God, because when I serve God, then God takes care of me. See, it's, 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 it's kind of opposite of your logic, but that's what they were thinking, is that, well, we've got to go take, do all of this so that we can live and live well, and God says, yeah, but you're missing me in that picture. Serve me, put me first, yes, go to work, but don't neglect what I've called you to do, and in the process, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll bless you. That ultimately is what tithing is about as a, as a people, as a church. It's trusting God as we're working 
but then we're saying, God, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to demonstrate that you're first in my life. That's why God tells us to tithe. Tithing is honestly not for God as much as it is for us. It's to discipline us to be content with where we are. It's disciplining us to worship God. It puts our heart in the right place. And God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, make, I'm going to help you, and you're going to live well on the, the 90%. So they experienced economic hardship because they didn't obey God. They missed out on the presence of God in their life. We don't have time to read the rest of, of the book together. But in chapter 2, people who were alive that had seen the original temple. The original temple was grandiose, and it was amazingly beautiful. And then they saw this little kind of hubble, this little shack that they were building today. And the older people that were around began to cry because they realized that what they were building today didn't look anything like what was back then. They made a mistake thinking that God is in the brick and mortar, in the packaging, more than in the people. And so God comes, God gives Haggai a message for those people. He tells them in verse 4, he says, Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Work, because I am with you. At the end of verse 5, he says, he says, My spirit remains in your midst. So the people heeded what God said. They did the hard work of going up into the hills. I like to hike and backpack. And whenever you go up, the whole difficult part is you're going up. It's not easy to go uphill and to carry whatever it is you're carrying. So for them to get the lumber out of those woods, they were cutting down trees. And they had to hike it up into the, the hills, and they had to cut all of that down and drag all of it down, an immense amount of work. And the, the people that, so as they began to obey God and God's spirit worked profoundly in the church, in fact, God just swept through. Today we would say they experienced a revival. And, and they really, as, as a, to the, every last one, they began working together and they began accomplishing that. But as they did, it didn't look anything nearly as good as the first one did. And so some of the older folks that were around were terribly discouraged. What is this? This is supposed to be the place where God is. This is supposed to be God's glory. Like, this is not glorious. And God says, look, don't be afraid. Be of courage. My spirit is with you. I'm so, by the way, encouraged by that as a pastor. You know, it's easy for any of us to look around and say, well, all that I'm doing is just this. I'm not very good at this, and I don't have good skills to accomplish this, and our little church does this, and we do that. But you know what really matters is whether or not God's spirit is there or not, right? It really is not the brick and mortar. It's not even the, it's not even the stuff that we do. It's either God is there with us or not. I, I, those of you that were here maybe four years ago, our church kind of turned a corner three years or so ago, and it's just been amazing what God has been doing. We're seeing people saved and baptized. In fact, Uma's getting baptized here this morning, another person. We've probably seen maybe 30 people trust Christ in the last three years and be baptized. And before that, we saw maybe a couple uh, in that same time frame. Uh, as someone, as I was sharing not too long ago, I said, you know what really changed? I feel like I changed as a pastor, but I feel like God just began showing up together. Nothing else around us changed. We were, it was just God began working profoundly. And I think because in many ways we began doing what we were supposed to be doing as a church. And if you've been here, you kind of know that story and that journey. And if you haven't, if you weren't here, we'll tell you a little bit of it in a few weeks if you sign up for the Discover class. But God's spirit was with them. So the second thing that happens, when you and I don't put God first, here's my whole point where I'm driving to on this, we miss God's presence in our life. You miss it. You miss what he's doing. See, the, the, the worst thing in this world that could ever happen to you or me, if we know Jesus, if we're really born again and saved, we can't lose that salvation. God adopts us in his family, and there's no mechanism in the world that can unadopt us because God has done it. He saved us. There's nobody stronger that can rip us out of his hand. We can't even do it ourselves, so we're saved. But the, greatest, the worst thing in this world that could happen 
to us. It's not that we lose our job. It's not that we go through some difficulty. Some of you guys are going through difficult things in your life right now. The greatest, most difficult thing that would happen, the most awful thing, would be God would just, almost as it were, hide himself from us and not be present in a, in a profound, abiding way. Sean, are you saying God's taking the Holy Spirit from us? No, I'm not talking about that either. But I know what it's like to live under the blessing of God when God is at work in my life. And I know when I'm living in sin and when that is removed, and it is awful. It's absolutely awful all day long. When you and I don't put God first, we miss out on the presence of the Almighty God in our life. We miss out on that. And it is very simple for you and I, very easy for us to go through the motions of church and life and our rhythms. It's Sunday, it's time to go. And, you know, even to go to a group, uh, a shallow group or a deep group. But to go through the motions and to miss the presence of God in our midst. Third big consequence, and it's, this is a big one, is that it not only dam is destructive or damages our economics, our finances, it damages us spiritually, but it's destructive to eternity. Look at the middle of chapter 2. In verse 9, the Bible says this, when God was still encouraging those people and telling them that he was going to do something amazing and provide for his temple and for his glory and all of that, and he was really talking about what was going to happen now in the New Testament, but we don't have time to talk about that. But in verse 9, he says, the latter glory of this house, talking about the temple, shall be greater than the former. He says, look, relax. I know it doesn't look like much now, but I'm going to do something that's going to be greater than before. That something is Jesus, and he's shifting pictures from a physical building to a spiritual temple. And he says, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God says, folks, don't mind. I don't care that this house doesn't look as good. I'm going to be here, and this is a place that I'm going to provide peace. This in the Old Testament, this word peace is what may be akin to what we would in the New Testament talk about salvation. God's saying, I'm going to provide salvation. I'm going to provide peace and security and blessing for everyone who comes here. Remember when Jesus walked through the temple and throughout the money changers, they had, they had turned the, place, the temple of worship for God to a way to make money and they were charging exorbitant rates and all kinds of bad accounting and economics and all of that, and, and God, Jesus drove them out of there, and he, we see him getting angry and running them out of there, and he says this, my house is to be called a house of prayer for the nations, Mark says, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see what the temple was all about? It was God bringing his presence on this earth in a visible form, if you will, we are not to make any statues or idols of, of God, representations of God, because we would begin to worship that. But God did say, I'm going to put a place, and I'm going to make this house for me, and I'm going to show up supernaturally in a way inside that room that no one's allowed to see because I'm a holy God and you're not. But this is going to be the place that I'm going to reveal myself to the world. Because I care about the world that's lost and dying and hopeless and in sin and in need of my Savior to cover their sin. And the Jews were at risk. What they were doing when they weren't rebuilding the temple, not only were they missing the blessing, but they, in essence, were consigning the rest of the world to an eternity without Jesus because God's presence wasn't able to be experienced, if you will, on this earth in that moment. They were more focused on what their kingdom than they were on building God's kingdom. You know, the Lord's Prayer says that, what is it? Thy, your kingdom come, your will be done. So often as we pray, we think that it's us getting our will done in heaven and our kingdom being built in heaven, and God's like, no, 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 no. Prayer is you getting my kingdom built on this earth, my will done on this earth. Prayer is meant to tune you into me and you turn around and do what I want you to do, not trying to get me to tune into you. I already know what's going on. We get it backwards. So how do we build God's kingdom on this earth? I'm so glad you asked that question. And that brings me to the third thing I want to talk about. What does this look like for you and me? 
Sean, are you trying to say that we need to remodel the church again because it needs to be better? No, I'm not saying that at all. Not even close. What's God's kingdom? What's God's house today? It's not a temple. It's people. The kingdom is the, that God is building today is people who are hearing his message of salvation, turning to him, surrendering their life to him, and growing him. We read on all throughout the New Testament that we have been added in, we've been grafted into the Jewish line, that we as the, are, become the body of Christ, that we are the, the bride of Christ, that we are even his temple, and that he is placing each one of us and building his temple, each Christian, each fellow believer. And the way we build it is through evangelism, through discipleship. It's through helping people know how to live, how to experience that life change by surrendering their life to Jesus and how to grow in that as they take a step of obedience every day, every little step along the way. God's saying, guys, I want you to be about that. That's why Jesus, when he left, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or keep or do all things that I've commanded you. And lo, the King James says, or behold, or catch this, I am with you. God's presence, just like this, I'm with you and blessing when you're doing that. So for you, what this means is that every one of us has a responsibility to build God's kingdom. Every one of us. See, God didn't come down to Haggai and like, Haggai, what are you doing? He didn't go to the priests, the high priests, the leaders, and just like, you guys should be doing this. He was telling the average person, he's like, you guys together need to be building my, my temple, my, my house, my kingdom. The cool thing is that every one of us get an opportunity to do that. I am amazed that you and I, God, God does not need any single one of us. God can build and do what God wants to do in this world without any of us. But God in his graciousness and his mercy and his love invites us to do it with him. And, and while we're on this earth, he says, guys, if you are willing, if you're willing to put me first, I'll build my kingdom through you. I will do it through you. And we, sometimes we feel like the people here, like, God, we're not doing very much, and who am I, and I can't do much. And God's like, just relax. My spirit's with you. What God is looking for is a willing hand, a, a willing heart, humble heart that's willing to step forward. So for you guys, that means that, that you, we should not procrastinate in our obedience to God. So starting all the way back, before a person really surrenders their life to Jesus, I, I urge you, if you're at that point, and you're just like, well, one day I'll get my life straightened out with God. One day I'll get it. You may not have one day. And God's sitting in heaven like, come on already. You know, I've given you years. Why are you putting this off? Surrender your life to me. Trust me. For you, I would say, stop procrastinating. You know enough to, to admit your sin to a holy God in heaven. Ask God for forgiveness of that and turn away from it and to trust him alone to be your Savior and Lord. If you have committed your heart to Jesus and surrendered to him, the next procrastination point that people often hit is they don't get baptized. Well, I'm just going gonna to wait. I don't know if I'm ready. I'm going to wait and I'm nervous. And sometimes people get a little nervous about being in front of others and Listen, whenever anybody gets baptized here in a minute, Uma's going to come up and the water is still warm, Uma. So this is not about the person getting baptized. This is not about you. This is about what God has done in us. This is his story. This is his glory. So it's meant to be a picture of the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As a person's laid under the water, it's a picture of them dying to sin. As they come out of the water, it's a picture of the new life that comes that we have already received because we trusted Jesus as Lord of our life. That's part of that life change that, that we love about here at church. So if you've received Christ and you really know him, there's no reason to delay in that whatsoever. 
Then we have lots of other procrastination points where we just, well, I'm too busy to do X, Y, Z. I'm too busy to, to really do, to get involved. I'm, really, I'm just too busy. I don't have time to read my Bible and pray. You know, I get up in the morning. I've got an early morning job. And just look. God's sitting in heaven. He's like, I know. I know it's work. It's work to go in those hills and cut down wood, but I don't care. I want you to serve me. I want you to know me and love me. I want to bless you. I want you to experience my presence in your life. Life is hard right now for you. And the reason it's even harder is because you're not putting me first. When you and I don't, I don't know how this works, but when we take time for God, we don't lose that time. I don't know how that works, but somehow God just multiplies it and he takes care of us. So whatever it is that you are procrastinating in, spiritually in your own growth just stop and say God I'll do that and then along the way God says I really want you to turn around and I want you to build my kingdom with other people and part of that means for us you know there's some chores that we do around the church I've learned that I've you know uh, there was a pastor who kind of made it popular a while ago you know everybody find your spiritual gift and serve inside your spiritual gift and all your things I know that's a biblical concept but he had a whole plan for it but I kind of realized one day, like, you know what? There's just a lot of stuff we do in church that's nobody's spiritual gift. It's just a chore. It's just work. You know what I mean? There's just nobody. I've, got ten, I've had 10 people live in my house. Nobody has the spiritual gift of cleaning toilets. <laughs> I haven't found that person in my home. If I did a little cute spiritual survey, you know, I, that would not pop up on anybody's list. list but we got to do chores. So I encourage you, part of building God's house is helping with chores. I'm grateful you guys do that tremendously. And, and this is not lip service or blowing smoke or whatever, but God takes notice of that. Nobody else may notice, but God notices it. And it's impacting his kingdom profoundly. And it's impacting it profoundly for people to be able to, to come and, and, and know and discover what God is up to. And then... And then beyond the chores, I would say everybody needs to find just that service ministry niche, that, that thing that they do for God that allows the gospel to impact other people's lives. I read a story this week about a family. Um, are, how many of you have ever been on the website or the gaming platform? Is it Twitch? Is that the, is that the one you guys know what I'm talking about? So two, how, raise your hands high. I want to see who the gamers are. Right, come on, raise your hand, man. I got the hands up there. All right, you too, Megan? <laughs> like she, Stephen, is it right? Has she been on it, Steve? Yeah. All right. <laughs> so it's like a gaming thing. So it's it's the third most popular website in the U.S. So if you have never been on it, you're totally missing out. But uh, I, I hopped on it. You can watch people play video games. You can see like a little picture of them, listen to them, wherever they are in their home or whatever, and you can see the screen of the video games and all that. And then you can play games and all of it. But anyway, there's this one family the that uh, this past week I read an article about Joshua and Daniel Greening. They're teenagers. And they just had kind of a competition, and they just played in a 30-day period. Between the two of them, they played over 662 hours of video games. Their, their um, it's not a website, but I want to call it. Their channel, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word. Is that the right word, Twitch people? I got it? Okay. Their channel is called The Way, based on Jesus, The Way, The Truth, and The Life. And they intentionally, they've just got a good way of talking back and forth, and they share about Christian life and about Jesus and the gospel in the midst of everyday teenager life. They had over 556,000 hours of people watching them during that 30-day kind of competition kind of thing. And they did it as a way to spread the gospel and doing something that they like to do. I think that's pretty cool. Now, I am not interested in playing video games that much. I do other weird things like go hike in the mountains or whatever, but I'd say that is them building God's kingdom. See, the cool thing today is, is we don't go and bring wood down from the mountains and build temples. We do the things that we like to do, and if we do them well, and if we do them smartly, we get to do it in a way that exposes other people to the gospel. What that means is, is if you're willing in your heart to, to change your heart, to where you go to work to actually be a testimony for God, then you stop building your kingdom, you stop doing it for you and for your money and chasing the almighty dollar to say, well, wait a minute, I can work and earn for my family, but I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to be a missionary for God in my workplace. We're at the remedy, by the way, if you hadn't noticed at my third point, we're at what do we do about this whole thing? 
So God tells us to, to change completely the priorities of our life, of the way that we live. So that means for us that we serve Him, we do some chores around the church as we're able, and we certainly discern and find those other avenues that impacts and share the gospel with other people around us. Why? Because God is still saying to you and me today, I'm all about building my kingdom. That's what God wants us to be doing, guys. God's not going to ask me when I get to heaven, Sean, how many bedrooms did you renovate? How many tomato plants did you guys put up every year? How many times did you sweep your porch? How many times did you, you know, paint your house? How many little backpacking trips did you go on? How many fish did you catch, Sean? What, you know, he's not going to ask me any of those. He's going to say, what did you do to build my kingdom while you're on this earth, Sean? And he's going to do that not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a child of his. And God's saying the exact same thing to all of us. And if we really pay attention to this, what that means is, is I'm thinking of you students now, as you guys are going through college, your priority in life should be not just, oh, how do I go make money and how do I get this perfect job and have this perfect life? Your focus ought to be, God, how can I serve you and allow why I'm in school to be a vehicle of that? How do I serve you and allow my job to help me be a missionary to the world? And God, maybe you have something else for me along that way. It, it changes everything in our world. That's what it means for you and I. So God's telling us, the remedy is simple. He says, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Stop and think. A lot of problems in life would be solved that way, wouldn't it? Think. Consider your ways and then go do something about it. Sometimes we relegate our spiritual life to the goosebump spiritual things. We want to go to the Christian concert because we have this incredible feeling and love in our heart. and We want to have all of that. And, and I believe that God wants us to have some of those in our life. But a whole lot of, life, of Christian life is just simply obeying God. You know, they got hot and tired and sweaty bringing that wood down. And God says, you got to do it. And so it's a challenge to you and me to not give God leftovers. He doesn't want our reheated leftovers. They were focused on their home, and once they got their homes the exact way they wanted it, then they'd go build God's temple. Is your home ever going to be exactly the way you want it? Answer is no. Is your job going to be ever exactly the way you want it? No. Is your life ever going to be exactly the way we want it? No. And if we wait till we get all that squared away before we do anything for God, we'll have lived our entire life and we would have wasted it and missed everything that God wanted to do for us. So I want to challenge you to step forward individually in your life. For us as a church, I'm going to, I'm going to finish with this. We're at a, uh, not a crossroads so much, but um, with Jeremy's leaving, for those of you that are new, our worship pastor uh, resigned recently and uh, he's moving to Oklahoma. And so... Uh, we're in the process of trying to figure out what all that looks like uh, for us as well. And uh, we were at a point, I'm going to be, I'll be, as a pastor, I tend to lead very transparently. We're actually, I was initiating conversations among our three pastors to go to our personnel team. We have a team of people that they're accountable to and work with for all of those things to say, hey, I think we ought to increase Jeremy's hours to half time because our church has grown to the point where we need it and we financially could afford it. We're probably going to be doing that this fall for next year's budget at the very least. So with Jeremy leaving, and we didn't realize at the time we began the discussions, like, oh, okay, what does that mean now? So as a church, we, we, we need more time and more help. So we're back to thinking through that, and it means we kind of look through things, realize, you know, we really, really do need to update our constitution and bylaws and and, and, and kind of help guide us in some of these things. So we're back at the point of now kind of relooking at those things. But, um, and, and then along the way, the other big piece in there that some of you know or may, may not know, but I, I would love for us to one day to put on a little entryway lobby out here. If, if you know me well, I have zero interest in making our building the Taj Mahal. Like we won't ever be doing stained glass windows here. We're not. I just, I don't want to spend money on all of that stuff. 
In fact, I only want us to spend money whenever that money that we spend actually impacts eternity. So uh, when I think about a lobby force, I've noticed last year as our church began to grow, there were moments when this hallway was just slammed with people. And I watched as new people would walk in the door first time ever and they walk in almost like a mosh pit and they're kind of like, you know, do I, like, what do I do? I could see it in their eyes and I felt terrible. Um, in that moment. That's why some of you college students are like, can you guys like get out of the way? Like move over here. And we, you're, I think I'm laughing, but we intentionally moved the tables to make room for like over here and we're like juggling every little thing. And because it dawned on me, we don't have a, a, a lobby as a church. Our most limiting factor to be able to disciple physically, to be able to disciple people well is not this space. This is big enough for now. It's definitely not parking. It's actually our entryway. I would love to do that. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what God wants, but this is a little tease for you guys. This is like, what does God want us to do as a church? Three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, we went through a whole process where we involved you guys in surveys and met and all kinds of things. I won't go through all of that again, but came out with a 2020 vision. And that was kind of even a big part of us jumping forward and God doing some amazing things in the middle of that. Not truly amazing. I'm not blowing smoke. I'm not, a, I'm not an inspirational. I don't inflate things by nature but we're at a point now where we're, we're like okay we've come to this point now God what do you want us to do and so I'm asking you as a church if you would pray with us pray with our uh, with Dan and me as the the two pastors uh, our personnel team you know as we think about filling these this this need and looking at what other needs are worship isn't our only uh, need uh, in our church there's some other holes too that we want to look potentially at filling with these we call someone or not, but um, I, I just want you to know that's where we're headed. I want you to know that that's the building, if you will, not, not the lobby. That's the part that God has us working on because he has a bunch more people that he wants to see trust Christ and people step forward in discipleship and follow him. And we get to do all of that together. And so I just wanted you to have a little, little sound bite of that. We'll be working with you guys and, and talking together as a church in the weeks ahead about how to do that well. I'm a big believer in a pastor-led church, a deacon-served church, and a team-supported church. By that, I mean teams of people that come together and help figure things out and guide and provide accountability. Um, that's what our personnel team is for when it comes to our staffing needs. That's what we did when we redecorated this, is we had a team of people behind the scenes to come and bring together ideas and to help support that and do things well. So we'll have deacons somewhere along the way. We'd like to have had them already, but keep in mind the first deacons didn't come along until the church had over 5,000 people in it, and they came along whenever there was such a problem that was causing conflict. So they're coming just not quite yet. First, we gotta get some ministry things in place and all of that, so we're a couple of years out from that. Those are some of the big rocks that we're looking at as a church. And I just felt the need to let you guys kinda of hear that, be aware of that, because the people knew what they should have been working on. And you guys can't help work on stuff if you don't know, so I just wanted you to know that as well. So let me, let me bring this to a close, and our worship team, as they come up to, to sing, and lead us in kind of a response time. I kind of want to go back personally to where you are individually. So where are you in your own personal walk with God? Where are you in thinking about God's priority in your life? Be careful, because the Jews overinflated the priority that God what really meant to them. What have you procrastinated about lately? What have you said, much like they did, oh, the time's not right. The time's never right for most any things that we do. But what have you been putting off? What has God been knocking at the door of your heart about and kind of pulling on you? How do you need to respond to that today? How has God been using you, and not just the chores, but maybe to spread his kingdom to other people? I want to challenge you, if, if you don't feel like God is doing that in some way, I want to challenge you first to pray, God, I'm willing to do that. I don't have a clue what that looks like, but God, I'm here, I'm willing. And then as God brings and opens doors with you, I want to challenge you to take those next steps. And if the step doesn't open up, 
or there's something even before that you want to talk, I want to encourage you to maybe share that with your life group when you start here next month. Share that with Dan or me. And I really want to see what God does in your life and in your ministry. Something I've also noticed, not everybody is going to play 662 hours of video games. Thank the Lord we don't have to do that to serve God. Oh my goodness, I would be in trouble. Not everybody's going to be a pastor. Not everybody's going to be a musician. Not everybody's going to be a Bible study leader. Often find sometimes that people say, well, I'm just not doing much of anything. And I look at them like, oh my goodness, you don't have a clue what you're doing. It's so powerful in other people's lives. So it may be that you are doing some things. And maybe that you just need to find encouragement that God is already using you profoundly. I don't know. But I know this at the end of the day. When we stand our feet on the edge of eternity, and eternity is in front of us and our life is behind us, what is, the only thing that's going to matter is how you and I built God's kingdom. Nothing else will matter, folks. Nothing. Not one single thing. And so I want, I want you to be ready for that moment. I want you to live in that joy of all of the fruit of your labor for all of eternity. I want us as a church to be in that. I, as a pastor, will personally be held accountable for how I've led and for what we've done for all of eternity. Uh, that's a moment. It's a terrifying thought. It's a sobering thought. So, anyway, why don't you pray, and uh, our team is going to lead us in a response song. Pray with me. Father, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful he loves us and he died on the cross for us. Lord, I'm grateful for the message of Haggai, the reminder that we are all to build your kingdom. Lord, forgive us when we get our eyes off of that priority and onto our own goals, our own agenda, our own everything for ourselves. And Lord, I, it's, I'm amazed that somehow we're able to serve you and put you first. And in that, you provide what we need. We get to have fun. And we, we get to work too, and it's hard at times. But somehow, Lord, all of that goes together. I'm thrilled at what you're doing in people's lives in our church. And God in heaven, I pray that you would not allow us to get so messed up that that would slow down or end. Lord, would you change more people's lives? Would you save more people? I pray for our friendships, our coworkers, our neighbors, our relationships, the community of Gilderland and Albany and Schenectady counties. God, would you use us? <laughs> our building and our efforts are meek and meager compared to what was before. But Lord, would you use us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.